So, our last Bible study for the semester, God willing. And uh, uh, we are covering inordinate goods this evening. Uh, there's notes right there, Tim. You don't have to use all of them, just one set. Are there any cupcakes? After we're done, I'll pass them out. He wanted them now. Coffee. This is all being recorded. <laughs> coffee. Okay. Everyone jealous and envious. Well, let's uh, thank God for Tim's coffee, cupcakes, and uh, the like. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this evening. We'd ask that you would help us understand these things uh, and seek to implement them as we can. In your Son's name, Amen. Um, this is an idea. You know, when you cover things like, we've covered faith, we've covered God, and sublime vision, we've uh, uh, covered some other things, I guess. Um, but something like inordinate goods is not something that there is a particular passage that says, notes are on the table, unless you're just... There's a passage that says notes on the table? Yes, yeah, they're <laughs> fantastic. Who just walked in was Drew and Lydia Nicholas. <laughs> so what passage is that? It's, uh, you take the whole thing, two full pages. And feel free to turn the lights on in the dining room if you'd like to be a little bit more illuminated. We've got time to get through all this stuff. We get through it. We don't have time, that's true, but we get through it. <laughs> And, um, Tim's leaving before Bible study's over, right? I remember this is that. all being recorded. <laughs> Tell the people you apologize. Thank you. I apologize for the Philistines. That I just don't want him to miss out on having one. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> okay. Back to the topic at hand. Um, it's an idea that is throughout the scriptures, but there's not a scriptural passage that says, now regarding inordinate goods, and, and laying something out for you. Um, years ago, I was reading Abolition of Man by uh, C.S. Lewis, and uh, in Abolition of Man, Lewis is dealing in part with the idea of the modern that suggests that there's not a uh, necessary, ordinate appraisal of the world we live in. In other words, uh, in his illustration, a waterfall does not turn, deserve the word sublime. You only have sublime subjective feelings about it. Lewis suggests in the old world, in old thought, the created world had ordinate, ordinate uh, appraisal that it deserved a certain assessment and uh, you should, you had a duty to render it to it. And he uses a couple of quotes. One here uh, on the uh, right-hand side, one from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Hence we ought to have been brought up in, particular, in a particular way from our very youth. As Plato says, so as both to delight in and be pained by the things that we ought, for this is the right education. Now, I think most of us as Christians um, understand that. We know that we should love what we should love and hate what we should hate, and those are generally good and evil. Um, 
and uh, we're content with that. Uh, most of the reason, if not all the reason we became Christians was because of a, um, uh, a sense of need that the presence of evil had produced in our lives. Uh, in this series of crucial ideas, um, one basic problem seems to come up among Christians, and that is the willingness, first off, to black and white the world, and to be satisfied once something is on the white side. Once it's on the good side, all bets are off. You know, um, and that we go to great lengths to try to find out if something is forbidden in the scripture, we always come up with questions. Well, what if this is so? Can I do it if this is so? And what is allowed for me to do? Because once it makes the list of allowed, I can take that bundle of stuff and arrange a life however I please out of the bundle of goods. Well, the topic tonight is inordinate goods. Because Augustine, who I'm not a big fan of, but uh, here he makes a good point, and Lewis follows after his Aristotle quote with this, when the miser prefers his gold to justice, it is through no fault of the gold, but of the man, and so with every created thing. For though it be good, it may be loved with an evil as well as with a good love. It is loved rightly when it is loved ordinately, evilly when inordinately. So the miser becomes wrong not because gold is bad or the desire for gold is bad, but uh, his inordinate affections for something good make it an evil or a calamity to whatever degree. So that is the basic idea we're looking at in the scriptures. Because once you, once you focus on that, that between the goods you have, there is an appropriate level that it can be good and not better. It can be better but not best. We don't, we don't make distinctions as well as we should. Now, I have here, and when we don't do that, we create a problem that Christ doesn't seem to labor under here in Matthew 4. This is the temptation. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I don't know if it ever struck you, but there was nothing wrong with the suggestion. Satan makes a suggestion. The fast is over. Right? Afterwards, he was hungry. He's just saying, well, you could make yourself lunch right about now. And Christ's answer to him is, bread is not as good as this. Bread alone, man does not live by, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, that beginning suggestion, once you have this idea, and you're going to see, I, in four pages, I gleaned a very slim selection of no, scriptural witness of this distinction in our lives. There's lots of distinction between good and evil, and there's lots of distinction between good and better. Now Ecclesiastes 2. Now this is the beginning of Ecclesiastes, 
And Solomon is making a test of all things. He says, I said to myself, come now, I'll make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wines, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I brought, bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered from myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, man's delight. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to wisdom, to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that one fate comes to them all. Then I said to myself, What befalls the fool befall me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. For of the wise man as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise man dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what was done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he'll be master for, of all up for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a man who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by a man who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and strain for, with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of pain, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his mind does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. And, and for, to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Now, long passage, I apologize. Solomon does go on. But you'll notice he did a bunch of very good things. I mean, architecture, agriculture, uh, politics... All sorts of things that uh, studied wisdom. Um, and he realized that all these goods uh, paled because they had a vanity, a futility, because of their temporariness, the impermanence of life. And in that realization, he comes, at the, it's the beginning point of our study, 
of what Christ is speaking to the devil. And that is, a wise man knows that there is, he's looking for the better thing. I can find the good thing to do pretty easily. Remember, we're all born with the knowledge of good and evil. We got that from Adam and Eve. Uh, the good knowledge of good and evil is there, but once you get into the realm of a busy life of good citizen, and you go out there making your days, and if you think deeply about it at all, you start to become aware that for all these goods, in quotes, there is some kind of weakness, that something better, if I set myself to finding the better, I might make sense of the goods. Because the goods by themselves, he ended up hating life because they were just goods and he was going to lose them because he was going to die. Goods in themselves were not good enough. And then he realizes there's nothing better for a man to do than enjoy his life. Second thought, who can have enjoyment apart from God? Clarify that a bit more. To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. So, it's, a, it's sort of the task you realize is upon you. Um, it, it begins with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, a more theologically based uh, uh, studies would suggest sort of a top-down analysis of life. You know, you start with God and, 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 and down to man and man's obligations, which is fine, it's good to do. Um, this starts from the bottom up, because you began with the bottom up. You came out of the womb, and you grew up, and you figured some things out. You didn't figure other things out. You started to design a life without the help of much wisdom or morality. And so you're building a life now, and if you set your sights first on this task of finding the better instead of just the good, the wisest man in history lets you know where that track goes. You see here in Ecclesiastes 4, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. But you say to yourself, hold it, well, hard work's good for a man. We try to raise our kids to be hard workers. He says in verse 9, in that section, <coughs> two are better than one. Now, is there anything wrong with one? I mean, there's nothing wrong with one. We, but we tempted, we're tempted if we stop with Aristotle, if we stop with that first quote that says, I should, you know, love what I should love and hate what I should hate. Um, if I figure out that two is better, we are sometimes tempted to suggest that one is somehow bad. We are, many people go back to that Ecclesiastes passage and they assume that Solomon was up to no good in all these things. Um, but they really are a, a reasonably innocent list, unless you don't like the concubine reference. We, when we make the category uh, available to ourselves that says I can subdivide my thought about what I do into these categories of good, the good, the, the range, the gradient of goods, as it goes up, justifies the lower goods. When I can find the higher, better, I, you might say, um, uh, bring into a greater state of righteousness the lower. In Ecclesiastes 7, this is one that's a little, uh, a little dicey. 
a good name is better than precious ointment. That's just sort of a proverbial nice thing to say. It is better, I suppose, than, than precious ointment. Because, uh, but that's just a, um, a catch. That's just to get your thought in there. It says, see, there are betters, natural betters in the world. You know this. Good name, better than precious ointment. And then he gets to the point. And the day of death than the, the, the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of countenance the heart is made glad. It's one of the greatest verses in Scripture. Now remember, Solomon had looked back in chapter 2 at all that he could possibly do, faced up to death and loss and futility, and hated it. And then he realized that that information opens up the path to where the true better is. If I get linked up to the goods that I'm allowed to do and devote my life to my profession, devote my life to my hobby, devote my life to my family, I'm going to get to the end of the road and, and suddenly, suddenly be reminded of death. Suddenly have your eyes opened to what it means to go away and be no, have no remembrance. Because the person who takes on death, who, who says, yeah, a mature soul, a wise soul, looks on this thing and sees the temporariness of all these lower earthly goods and is gladdened just because, just like, because he's pushed back to the enjoyment of the day in which he can only have that enjoyment if he pleases God. The, 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 the center of the Christian life um, joy-wise is existential. It's, it's right here, right now. It's not what we can create. It's not what we can cash in at the end. It's not what we get our lives added up as. It's what we're doing right now in pleasing God and we're driven back there by, by this search for the better. In another example, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. There are things that are painful, like death, like sorrow, like rebuke, but because they are, when I, when I value them correctly, take Augustine's advice and say, I need to, I need to, you know, like they do in consumer reports, you know, they, they have a little chart of the Maytag washer and the Whirlpool and they have little dots and they solid black or a half, you know, they, they let you know how good it is in the spin cycle. Well, you have a life that you're trying to arrange, and you're supposed to pull it together somehow as knowing that there are these distinctions up and down. And at no point does building a pleasure park, Versailles, is it wrong to build. It's not wrong. But wrong does not make it a full-bore presence in your life, that this is what I am about, because... If it were the only good, it'd be bad. You'd be the miser. You'd become bad through... Um, um, and he lets you know here at the end of the Ecclesiastes passage, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You'd be surprised how many times the words better shows up in the scripture. I, I do read them quite a bit on this, on this page. Now we have this 
task, that pleasing God is the is the you might the sunum bonum of the better path. This 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 great good. The, the, and and who can have enjoyment apart from God, and who can get enjoyment from God unless they please Him? And we are forced into assessing in the scriptures, well then how do I find this this better thing? And you'll notice that this is the structure of better and goods and better that the pleasing of God comes to us through. 1 Samuel 15. This is after Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord and did not kill all the um, Amalekites. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Was there anything wrong with sacrifice? Was there anything wrong with the fat of rams? No. But if you don't know that it's better to please God, better to find this path, I start to become aware of what he would like more than this. Obedience is better than rituals. It doesn't matter if the rituals are handed down from Sinai. And that's what these rituals were. I mean, these are sacrifices the Levitical law required and expected, and religious people did. Uh, but obedience is better than that. And if I am sometimes, because I don't make this better and good distinction in life, I just pat myself on the back, find myself justified because I'm faithfully doing the rituals. I'm faithfully doing the goods. Nobody can call me a fat thief or a liar or anything like that. All the clear bads. But I haven't found clarity in the betters. Micah 6, famous passage. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The longer version of do what you're told. Okay, do what you're told on the better plane. Because the lower plane, he says, shall I just, and this is what we do. We're watching, as the crucial idea, I watch Christians try to pony up. They first say, okay, as long as I'm, there's nothing wrong with this. I could do this because there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but have they sought the better? And when they realize, okay, God does not happy enough with that, shall I, first first was burnt offerings? Okay, how about thousands of burnt offerings? How about if I up the quantity? 10,000 rivers of oil. In other words, just more of the same good. And then quality of the sacrifice. How about if I killed my kid? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? You just want more, more, you know, striking sacrifices? And that's why they sacrificed human beings, was because it was more striking. It was more, people didn't like killing their babies. They did it because they wanted to have a sacrifice that was, once you get past 10,000 
cattle being sacrificed, all we're going to do, we've got to please the God. Well, now people. It's the same thing, either quantity or quality, upping the ante, rather than admitting there's something higher than this. It's a, it's a trap of goods. I find a good place, and I start to make a world that is limited by those goods. Luke uh, 5. He told them a parable also. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it upon an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says, the old is good. Other translations say the old is better. And that's what happens when we camp out. This is re regarding the old covenant and the new. The Jews were not willing to give up this camping out in religious temple observances, pleasing the God by correct ministering of the, of the, of the ritual that Moses had commanded. There is a comfort in settling for the old goods because most everybody else is doing that. Most everybody else is not designing a Christian life that lives on a plane of correct arrangement. We're not talking about, remember, we're not talking about eliminating the lower goods. We're just letting you know that it's lower. We've had this um, argument in various circles of recent about music and art, and, and uh, there's no crime in liking lower quality music. It's still music, it's still enjoyable, it's still good. It just isn't Mozart. You know, uh, Mozart's better, ZZ Top is good, but Mozart's better. And I can take both, but if I become too comfortable in one lower kind of thing or a group of lower things, I can oftentimes never absorb the new one. Because I'm the old wineskins, I'll just be burst by it. If our desire is to please God, uh, remember that the, 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 we need to please God in order to enjoy our life in the existential moment. And that's the, that's the chief good. That's the, nothing better for a man to do. And if you, if you anchored yourself there and said, nothing better for me to do but enjoy my life, okay, that's the ticket. How am I going to do this? I get thrown immediately into this idea of pleasing God. And then he starts telling me, you know, all the goods that you had naturally accepted, uh, you need more. You need obedience. You need justice. You need kindness. You need to walk humbly with God. People are kind of comfortable with not pursuing those things. Well, those things weren't coming naturally to the unregenerate man, and the new covenant in Christ comes along. And in Romans 3, I have a couple passages here where he, he allots what these people who are unwilling to take the new wine do. What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. He's listing one of the things that the lower good, the lower good brought us. The lower good was the faithful memory and the history of God's dealing with man. The prophets of God came through the Jews. The law of God came through the Jews. 
And the memory of the law and the prophets came to us through the Jews. The oracles came to us through them. Down in verse 9, same chapter, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For I've already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So this problem that has beset history, not just our lives, but history, as it, as it came up through the ranks, these uh, more, you might say, um, immediate goods were pronounced in history. And the Jews took to them and started to live them out. And the prophets were warning them about it, like in Samuel, like in Micah, that hold it, are you guys pushing on as far as God might want? Or are you settling it out? And it got to the point when the Messiah does come and the new covenant does come that um, they were unwilling to go all the distance. They were unwilling to pursue God into it. Hebrews 8, 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is much as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Hebrews 9, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, speaking of the tabernacle, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What we, as we, we take from Solomon's point on, and we go, okay, I'm about pleasing God. Okay, it's not just the rituals. It's not just the good things, not just the pleasant things, not just the earthly things that are allowable. It's got to be more. I have to please God. Um, he's not pleased with my disobedience. He's not pleased with my ethical frame. Um, the message comes to us of this new covenant in Christ where ethics are answered by the death of Christ. And he, in the whole argument in Hebrews is about the superiority of uh, the new covenant over the old. And it's better, and it's better, and it's better. Christianity is better than Judaism. Grace is better than the law. And Christ's death is better than any temple sacrifice. And one of the hardest things to get through to people, Christians, is that when God says a good thing in the Old Testament, in the law, they think it must have an equivalence. It is just as good as anything. Because we have this kind of a black-white if it's on the good side, and God said that was good, we must do it with the same alacrity that all other goods are done with. But there are goods that are not guided by the true betters. And when you settle in those goods, you don't recognize the betters because you're comfortable. And you fail to realize the new covenant that Christ brings is better than that covenant, and it's got better promises, and it's got better sacrifices. Now when we get to that point in Acts 4, this is where Peter and John are under arrest for preaching in the temple. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they had uneducated common men. They wondered, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the, ma the man that had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? 
for that a notable sign has been performed through them is manifest to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Because we stand in this better place, this new covenant, some things that are still goods, respecting your elders, submitting to your political and religious leaders, number of other things like that, these are goods. It's not evil to submit to your spiritual leaders or the high priest or something like that. It's, it's good to do that. Well, they just told you to do something that did not recognize the presence of the better. And the people that wanted to just keep the old wine because it was better, the Jews, the people that got comfortable with just the lower goods and whatever life they could design in good citizenship behavior, want to call you back and you're going to stand at the forefront of that and say, now, I have to decide whether I'm going to listen to you or listen to God and I'm going to have to decide which one's better for me to do. And since I'm saying, preaching, living, having seen something better, we can do nothing but say that. In Matthew 10, this is one that people struggle with sometimes. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Once again, we're thrown into the mix, not of a challenge between adultery, theft, lying, murder, rape, other bad things, and good living, but between good family values and Jesus Christ. And some things, we, because we're Gentiles and we're not raised in you might say the Levitical law, we're not Pharisees to begin with, and we don't have a, well, some, many people have an inkling to go back to the law. Christians have fallen for that one before, but we all, like our families, I hope, to some degree, ladies, you like the folks? Well, they can be a real temptation. And we have to admit, families are good. Family affections. The scriptures, the New Testament enjoins that any man who does not take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. It says, children, obey your parents. The Lord says, this is right. Um, it has all sorts of commandments about this good. It's not just the good of architecture. It's not just the good of a good park in, in, in Solomon's life or singers. It's, it's, a, it's a social, uh, moral good. But the better commands your greater attention. You may not feature your family above your God. Because if you do, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You may not, and self-defense, by the way, man has that almost down to his bones, but it says he does not take up his cross and follow me. He who finds his life will lose it, 
He who loses his life for my sake will find it. These are all things that we... And again, I'm not encouraging you to, okay, it's only Jesus, no matter what. I'm not even going to think about my life. No, you think about your life. You think about your family. You think about your yard. You think about your job. You're supposed to. The problem is the absence of the higher good because the presence of the higher good guides the lower goods. The, only the presence of the lower goods will leave you sensing futility at the end of, your day, end of your days and will not please God because God isn't asking for the higher good. What you're supposed to find in life of this enjoyment of life in the presence of God's pleasure is lost. Matthew 13. This is out of the parable of the sower. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Should you not care for your own safety, the safety of your family? Should you not care for success? I've had a lot of people talk to me about, is it right for Christians to have any ambitions? I would say, sure, yeah. And be concerned for the safety of your family. But when it's the only good, or it's the good that once I've seized upon it, I, I erect a little temple to it as good, and I never go find that Jesus Christ and his gospel is better, when the, the feds come to collect my children to take them off to re-education camps, I fall away. That's what happens to people who, facing the attack on their lower goods, there's persecution, tribulation, oh, I can't do that, so that disturbs my life. Or, in the positive side of the ledger, cares for the world and delight and riches. Success in the world, not failure. Desire to keep the goods, not just lose them. Not just to not lose them, but to grow them, delighting in riches. And there's nothing wrong with the riches. But that makes you prove unfruitful. The presence of the better is absolutely necessary. Luke 12, one of the multitudes said to him, Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said to them, Take heed, beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's a kind of a, a subtle th thrust at you that says that, that many who are monastic in their inclinations say, Ah, see, we should give away everything we have. Well, that is the person who's limited to two choices. It's good or bad not its good and better and best. And when I make the good and the better and best walk hand in hand, they can function together. Uh, you see it over here on the right-hand margin, Timothy 6.17. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, which Solomon had done. He set his hope on it and then realized they're uncertain but on God, who richly furnishes us everything with everything to enjoy. Almost a little moment of Solomon right there out of Timothy. Don't set your hopes on it. It doesn't say stop being wealthy. Matter of fact, it, they are to do good, 
be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. And that's what we're trying to do by finding the better in light of all the goods. The parable that's here in the uh, passage we're just reading, the Luke 12 passage, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, in red, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Another Solomon moment. Who knows if the man who comes after you will be a wise man or a fool? You're going to leave your stuff to them. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, because he fails in the second good, the higher good. Not Look at the guy, what the guy did. He did nothing but good business. He was a good farmer. He didn't like, it wasn't like, and he cheated. All of his, you know, he's, he's not that kind. He just had great harvests, and he had to build bigger silos. And that's, that's success. Be in the newspaper, a farmer, or so-and-so, had a great harvest this year, and he's building new silos south of town. We applaud him. Good for him. But life, this is why it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. You remember, the living will lay it to heart, and you begin to realize the things that I am, the goods I am occupying myself with, if I am not rich towards God, all of that becomes pointless. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, nor about your body, which you should put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, and they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more value are you than the birds? Hold it. We're better than birds. There's another better. Birds are good. We're better. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? Now, down in verse 31, which I didn't bold, he's recommending against anxiety. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things shall be yours as well. Also, oh, okay, God's on board with this. Not just Evan. God's, Evan's not just trying to keep all these earthly joys and all these earthly goods because he'd like to keep them. But Jesus says, you know, if you get the better thing figured out, God will provide the lesser goods. And our anxieties, where do they come from? You start hoping in them because they're your only hope, Obi-Wan. They are, that's it, your barns. That's what your retirement is. How are your 401k doing? That's your hope. And of course, when the stock market goes south on you, way south, you become anxious because you've hoped in something that is impermanent. But if you've got God where he ought to be, if you've got the gospel and the kingdom where it ought to be, then you find that your anxieties are lifted because you've trusted into, in him who is eternal, and he takes care of the rest. 
1 Timothy 4. Have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. Train yourself in godliness, for while having well, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. I didn't have this first earlier today, or was it yesterday? I talked to a friend of mine, Stephanie Norvell, on the phone, and and I telling her a bit about the Bible study, and she said, well, what about that verse about bodily training? I said, good thought. I wrote it, wrote it down and shoved it in here. Because it's a great, it, it's one of the things we do. Health, fitness, nothing wrong with being healthy, fit. Probably good to be healthy and fit. But it's not as good. It's of some value. The King James says little value. But whatever you want to, however you want to slice it, it's got some value. But godly has value, godliness has value in every way. Now you just have to ask yourself in all of these things, not only have I sat down with life and trying to put things where they belong, fit them into their categories and in, in, in stratified senses of how good and what is lording over the lower goods, but does my life interest match the ratio? Do I say, because I mean, what Christian would say, what Christian would say that the gospel and Jesus Christ and the things of God and holiness are, are, not, are, are greater than uh, health and fitness? Um, I think everybody would go, yeah, I think that I know the answer to that one, Pastor. Uh, that's, uh, I can give a call on me, I got the right answer. It's different than us arranging our lives. Is the ratio where it should be? Now, Sometimes, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm touching on a few things, and in your own study of the Bible, as you think on this, um, you might pull out different you know, axes of arrangements, but I, I noticed these, so I'm bringing them up. Um, once you say, okay, I'm on board with this, we're always wanting to stop in the process and go, okay, um, if godliness and, and the things of God are more important than the things of life, family, uh, business, politics, uh, and then architecture and enjoyments of, you know, basic things, uh, common graces. I'm on it. And, we, and, and just like many people want to stop with saying, if it's good, I do what I want, as long as it's good. The Christian says, okay, I do realize that the kingdom of God is higher than the, our, 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 our mortal frames and the goods that are common graces to all men. But there's a problem in that too, Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, now in our religious Christian moments in the church, this person speaks in tongues, prophesies, understands everything, insight out the yin yang, and uh, faith to move mountains, and and then was goes to his martyrdom. You know, when the liberals of Moscow take over and finally want to kill the Christians, he is the first to go, and he steps forward nobly and dies a death at the stake down on Friendship Square. But he wasn't a really nice guy. I remember reading a good quote by a historian of Scotland speaking of John Knox. 
He was not very Christ-like, but he was good for Scotland. We want to be Christ-like. Love trumps other religious goods. Because prophecy is good, faith is good, uh, martyrdom, fine. What are the other? Tongues is good. Understanding, good. But love, because it is better and higher, it justifies the lower goods. Because the lower goods become non-goods. You know, or the, or the, they become pointless, they become um, uh, pernicious things. They be, start becoming a church that nobody wants to be near because the higher and better good wasn't present. I have this phrase I, I picked up from Lewis at one point. He's talking about the greater includes the lesser. I think it's in the Space Trilogy. Um, that's not, I have it in quotes. It's not an exact quote, but the, the thought sprang uh, to, our, to my mind. Even, all, even if your theology is perfect, your metaphysics are powerful and present, if you deny and don't acknowledge the better, Christ's love in the, in the down in verse 13, faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, when he moves on into chapter 14 here, look down in verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. So we know that, that what he was saying earlier is not saying, you know, just love, don't worry about tongues. No, saying, I want you all to speak in tongues. And even more to prophesy. That was also on the list of things that, that are pointless without the greater. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. So even within this, I have to admit that there's a higher thing. That's why it says earnestly desire that you should prophesy. It's a greater thing. It tells you that if you're in the bonds of slavery, no biggie, you can be a slave and a Christian. But if freedom avails itself, take opportunity in it, because it's better to be free. You know, we have, you know, once we start to realize that I don't have to demonize the thing I'm leaving or the thing that is lower, I just have to realize that I've got a range of goods. It like it I, I start to find an awful lot in scripture I can be, you want to say, working on in governing my life. But he says here. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. There's a suggestion here that in the church, and in personal devotions as well, because Paul applies it to his own speak, tongue speaking in his private prayers, he wants the desire to interpret as well, because otherwise he would not be edified. And edification is more important than a flight of religious devotion. Not that the flight of religious devotion is wrong, but edification is higher. Verse 18 of the same chapter, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You get a sense of ratio there. Your flight of religious devotion, speaking in tongues, not knowing what you're saying, by yourself in prayer, well and good, whether, whether what you believe about tongues is, is really not the point. But for Paul, it was. He did more than anyone else he knew, and yet he knew what was better. 
In his own life, he said, I would want the power to interpret because I want to be edified because edification is important. And in the church, it's necessary. You don't want to be sacrificing everybody else's time and growth and benefit because it is better that they be edified. And as I don't know what the ratio is here, 5 to 10,000, that's a pretty big ratio. What then, brethren, later in the chapter, verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, in each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silence in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting by, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And, all, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. I threw that in there because not only did it go on about the edification issue, is a better, but it's letting you know that it's in your hands to govern. It's saying it's subject, the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. These lower goods... Not as important as church order and edification. If there's no one to interpret, you've got to be quiet. And at most, two or three, you've got to be quiet. And you have to decide to be quiet. The Spirit's not going to be. The Spirit is subject to the prophet. We're expected to govern the application of these things. So as you think about them, and uh, sort of move on through in analyzing your life and your goods and the things you pursue and the ratio in your actual practical life of how much you pay attention to the kingdom of God. Are you rich towards God, not just rich towards your own profession? Are you rich, richer towards God than you are to family without denying your obligations to your family? Are you, wh where are you in these things? You have to stop and say, this is for me. I'm being told all these things for a reason. I can, do, I can do this. I've been given the authority to design my life this way. Ecclesiastes 9, I threw this in because it was a sort of a society at large situation. I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. And there was found in it a poor wise man and by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So we have... things to organize in our broader life. Wisdom is better than recognition. Wisdom is better than might. Um, nothing wrong with might and nothing wrong with recognition. But once I stop pursuing wisdom because it lacks the recognition, I just decided that recognition is better than wisdom. Or if I give up on wisdom because I just want to get more legions and win the war that way, more might. I'm not designing my life to be wise. A person who says, 
well, I, I, I could either be wise and have a small amount of venture capital to start this business I'm starting, small amount of venture capital that I had to be real wise, or I could just borrow a boatload of money <laughs> and be not so wise because I could just spend a whole bunch of money and that would solve every problem. We have to have the right arrangement of betters in our goods. Now, as we get into these last few passages, so far, straightforward. We're desiring to please God. We want to have the ideal life. We want to be in a situation that is not merely allowed, but is enjoyed and under the pleasure of God. So we find our way to Christ. We find our way in Christ to the things of Christ that are the highest, love. It guides our ethics, it controls our religious endeavors, our devotions, our, our metaphysical moments. Uh, it fixes a bunch of things. But it also has one temptation in regarding the better is how we regard others in that effort because uh, we are bossy. We tend to think that whatever we discovered as better must be better for you too. And if you just won't listen, you need to be reprimanded. And uh, here in Corinthians 7, it's about marriage and sex. Now, I had to say sex, pause sex, because you have to do that with the word sex. Yeah. Now concerning the matters about what you wrote, I wondered what they wrote. It is well for a man not to touch a woman. But because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not rule over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not rule over his own body, but the wife does. Do not refuse one another, except perhaps by agreement for a season, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. Now, this passage is naturally and ought to be taught when it's dealing with marriage and dealing with people and thinking about marriage. And, and, but if you, with this subject in mind, looking for the, ordin the ordinate goods, the betters, it's better not to touch. It's better to be married than to be tempted. It's better to have sex than to pray too much. Yeah, that last one is a little... Because the only reason you can stop doing the deed is for prayer and fasting, but not for very long. Sex has to trump the prayer. Because it's, it's, a, it's a more, you might say, demanding good. I say this by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as myself, I myself am, but each has his own special gift. This is key in what we're talking about. When we get to designing betters, when we start to see these betters, the betters he just listed about touching a woman, getting married, not leaving the marriage bed for too long, uh, didn't apply to him. To the unmarried, the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. I'm recommending it. The better I have encountered, singleness, good, I recommend it. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So I've got two betters. 
doing two mutually exclusive things. Remaining single and getting married. Remaining single and getting married. Both are betters, depending on conditions. And St. Paul shows his understanding. He was in one camp. He knew most people were in the other. He recommends his camp, but he sets the conditions for the other camp. He says, if you're in that situation, it'd be better for you to get married. So we, we adjust ourselves to realizing that it's not a set schematic for every believer. It lets you know here in Corinthians 8, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That was the association back in 13, that love was, knowledge was nothing without love. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if one loves God, one is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know uh, an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are maybe so-called gods in heaven and earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. So he's talking about a knowledge, a state of knowing that is true, correct, it's better than not knowing. But some, being, through being hitherto accustomed to idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Only take care, lest this liberty of yours, the knowledge, the higher knowledge, somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There's not just a dividing line between callings of circumstance. You don't have the urge for the opposite sex. Paul recommends you don't get married, the better. You do, I recommend you get married. Two different betters. Now there's a betters, uh, a, a way of treating this better situation when it's evident that the one of the parties is in the wrong, has a less correct knowing. I still give myself to that person. He says down in verse 13, therefore food is cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat unless I cause my brother to fall. This is an example of why you push love, the love of Christ, up to the top of the heap, because it informs your knowledge. It informs the importance of, you know, better off, no worse off, you eat or don't eat. So, if you love your brother, and you know he's defiled because he does have a different circumstance, different arrangement of issues, because he used to be an idol worshiper, and if he ate food offered to idols, he'd be condemned in his own heart. I don't want to hurt him. I don't just live by the arrangement I discovered in myself. Because when I move up, happy is the man who has no reason to judge himself for what he approves, it says, I think, in Romans. Uh, You've got the situation, you're studying your own life, but you're not just your own person. You're in the church, you're with other people. You have to allow, not just that they have a different path in these goods, a different arrangement of these goods, but sometimes you're giving to people whose differences with you are different um, levels of correctness. 
Romans 14. As for the man who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. That's one verse I had to learn multiple times. Um, because any of us who think a lot about our faith or think a lot about ideas, we come to conclusions, then we, you know, start pounding every nail, you know, and then we walk through your door who says that they hold some nonsense view, you want to be on them like white on rice. And uh, it tells you not to do that. <laughs> and uh, one believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. There's my argument. <laughs> Against, uh, what are they called, vegans? Let him not eat who eats, despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. We are looking, and remember, you're looking for this existential joy in the pleasure of God in this moment. It's going to be sometimes different than the person standing next to you. But the highest good will be the same. In the church, the highest good will be Christ and God, his gospel and his love. And that's, going to, that's where you're bound together. And because both of you love the man who eats and the man who abstains, ought to be able to function together. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Our relationship to each other is not about us working it out, arguing enough with the vegetarian Christian, the Seventh-day Adventist who's got all sorts of health food stuff and weird day of worshiping, uh, uh, you know, just and, and how do you get along with them until they straighten you out or you straighten them out? And so we spend all of our time firing cannon back and forth between doctrinal differences rather than saying, you know, if we just tracked each, that all of our standing, all of my fully convinced is in how I have pulled it back to the better and best. And his as well. Because I know that if he is encouraged up to the better and best, and I am up there, our fully convinced status, let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, this is almost Seventh-day Adventism, because we've got vegetarians and Sabbath observance. Right? Where he says, one man esteems one day is better than another, while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. But we say, well, isn't there a right answer? Who cares? It's before your own master you stand or fall. And your master is able to make you stand. That if I uh, get my convinced status, not just or about me arguing my lower goods, my lower understanding, but then I have a better track of called the love of Christ, that's where my full convincing gets in. It's only when I don't have recourse to the better, if I don't have recourse to the better, I find that being alone in the world, you know, I have some odd views. Um, some have said. And um, I'm pretty comfortable with them. Um, and largely because I have no need to have anybody else believe it. That's, that's the way it is. I'm content that I, I think I have a, a case in the scriptures before God for everything I think. Now, you might say, Bosh. Well and good. 
But off times, just like if I circle the lower goods and only lower goods alone in my life, I become anxious because these are not enough to keep me at peace with life. If I don't, in these ideas about piety, do the same, if I don't go to the betters to justify me, if I don't go to Christ and the higher things to fully convince me, I get my convincing from trying to get a lot of people <coughs> on the team. That's because walks popularly walks day, right? It's the, the voice of people, the people is the voice of God. And if I could just get 10,000 people to agree with the, I like to call it Clan McEvan, um, uh, if Clan McEvan became a notable international movement of bizarre theology, if I needed that to get my full convincing, it would be evidence to me that I, I wasn't counting on my master. I wasn't being made to stand by the higher thing. Because none of us, it says down in verse 7, we're all doing it to the honor of the Lord. But I have the higher. My lower thing is being justified by my, that's what he says, right? He abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The man who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. If I am referring my lower goods, even if it differs with another believer, if I find that I'm doing it to the honor of the higher, none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now, the flash passage, and, and again, these are, I went through the scriptures rapidly pulling things that I remembered, pulling things that Stephanie recommended. You know, whatever the uh, pieces I could pull together, it would be limited to four pages. There's boatloads. Boy, the Proverbs alone, if you type in the word better, <laughs> the Proverbs will come up with, it's better to do this than to do that. It's, now, some of it will be good to evil, but some of it will be good to good. I like this last one, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay? Good to be alive with Christ, better to be dead with Christ. Okay? If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He knows why it's good to be alive. I could be bare fruit. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, be, to, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Threw that in because that is another example of how our distinctions of betters, we had different tracks, we could be legitimately on married, unmarried, we had different tracks of correctness, incorrectness. Then we had judgment calls, differences of opinion that, that Paul's not willing to settle, and he's just willing to tell you, default to your betters. And he's even saying, I've got something I know is better for me, and I, in my life, will choose the lower good for your sake. We have that, but it's, an, but it's an understanding of what is better, and he knows that he can set that kind of better, dying and going to be with the Lord, aside for a time. He was going to die soon enough anyway. But 
he was going to give himself to more years of serving the Philippians. Consequently, we have this task, I think, is not on the church. This task is on us as individuals. Uh, because the application of it is all this individualistic you know, presence of mind. Accepting the idea that there's an ordinate place that all goods should be in. There's a design of the, the, then there is the justification of that ordinate place. That what is it based on? Why do I make Christ and his love the greatest thing? Is it scriptural? Because I, I know there are people that have ordinate placements that I think are wrong. Someone may say, the church is the most important thing. Well, the church is not. Now, we have this task on us to find our way to the right and the same end on the top of the meter, on the top of the, the gradient, so that our lives together, regardless of how we design these things and these lower goods, not including the evils, but the lower goods, um, welcome each other and support each other and give things up for each other. Well, that was an hour and ten minutes. And I'm counting all those conversations about cupcakes beforehand. Wow. So, speaking of cupcakes, let's thank God and you can have one. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Uh, we'd ask that you'd lead each of us into a better understanding of what the government of our lives ought to be. That we'd seek out these things and understand what goes above what. That our lower lives, our lower goods would be made good and holy and pleasing to you. Because we want on all fronts, not just to be doing a thing pleasing, but to have our lives arranged to be pleasing to you. That we could enjoy our life today. In your son's name, amen.